the book of Romans in chapter 8. The book of Romans in chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 5. So Romans 8, beginning in verse 5. And we'll read to the end of this paragraph. Let me remind you as we read that this is, um, yes, a fascinating letter, uh, a wonderful literary achievement, but it is so much more than that. This is the Word of God. And so let us, as we read it, remember this is our God speaking to us. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This morning I tried to make very clear that the two kinds of people described here are not two different kinds of Christians. Verses 3 and 4 simply will not allow that interpretation. The person who lives according to the flesh is still an unbeliever. The person who lives according to the Spirit is a Christian, bought by the blood of Christ, forgiven of all their sins. And I stress that this morning, and now I'm going to say something, and it may sound at first like I am contradicting, but I'm not. So hear what I'm saying very carefully. I want to add to what I said this morning that there is such a thing as a Christian who is so immature in the faith, so tangled up in the cares of this world, that outwardly you can tell little difference between the unbeliever and the Christian. I don't think we can or should deny that for a moment. There is such a thing as a Christian who is very immature in the faith. Now look with me very quickly at 1 Corinthians 3. Let me show you how I think we ought to think about uh, this issue. Uh, The verse I want to show you is the proof text uh, used by those Christians who argue, as we talked about this morning, that you can have Jesus as Savior without having Jesus as Lord. Uh, This is the verse they point to to prove what they call the doctrine of the carnal Christian. That is a Christian who is so caught up in the flesh that they don't even truly repent of their sins. And yet they say these people by faith are still Christians. Let's look at what this verse says. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now the argument goes like this. Paul is clearly writing to Christians in this passage. He calls these people brothers. He says that they are infants in Christ. Yes, they're infants, but they are infants in Christ. And this means that they are believers. These are true Christians. And yet... He says that he cannot address them as spiritual people. 
He addresses them as carnal people, as people of the flesh. And so you see, the argument goes, doesn't this verse prove that you can walk according to the flesh, that you can be of the flesh and still be a Christian? You're not a mature Christian, but you're a Christian and you're a Christian of the flesh, a carnal Christian. And that's what some have taught from this verse. I want to suggest that that is not at all the right way to understand 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1. If for no other reason, it completely contradicts the clear teaching of Paul in Romans 8, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. The right way to understand this verse is that the Corinthians were so immature in their faith that Paul had to address them as fleshly people. It isn't that they are fleshly people, right? He says, I address you not as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. They had progressed so little in holiness. These people had progressed so little in faith that Paul almost had to speak to them as if he were speaking to lost people. They were very fleshly, but at the core of who they were, they were born again and dwelt by the Spirit. Listen to Calvin on this because I think he has it exactly right. He finds the balance in the passage. Uh, He says, Paul does not mean that they were altogether carnal so as not to have one spark of the Spirit of God, but that they had still greatly too much of that carnal sense so that the flesh prevailed over the Spirit and did, as it were, drown out his light. Hence, Although they were not altogether destitute of grace, yet as they had more of the flesh than of the Spirit, they are on that account termed carnal. This sufficiently appears from what he immediately adds, that they were babes in Christ, for they would not have been babes had they not been begotten, and that begetting is from the Spirit of God." And so you see, uh, we need to make sure we're clear on this. There is no such thing as a person who is a true Christian, saved by the blood of Jesus, but devoid of the Spirit of God. If you are a Christian, you are of the flesh. I mean, you are of the Spirit. But you can be so immature, and you can be still so young in the faith, that when we look at your life, it is really hard to see the Spirit in you. At the core of you are, you've been changed. There's a lot of thorns, right? And you're in danger. Uh, Remember, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Certainly trusting Jesus for salvation pleases God. So it is impossible for anyone to be completely in the flesh and yet a Christian. Your heart has to be changed. The Spirit of God must come into you if you are to be a true believer. And so every Christian is, to some degree, a spiritual person. But it is possible to remain so immature in the faith and so immature in holiness for a time, such that there is a little difference to be seen between you and the person that's lost. Now, with that being said, let me make two comments about that. The first is this. For those who profess Jesus but are just very immature in faith and holiness, you need to know that you are in grave danger of proving yourself to be false. In other words, no Christian should ever comfort himself or herself 
give himself assurance about belonging to Christ if he or she can't see a difference between them and the way the rest of the world is living. You don't have grounds for assurance if you are so immature in the faith that we can't tell the difference between you and a lost person. I would say this to that person. I would say, yes, it is very possible that you are just a very immature Christian who needs to grow up in the faith. But it is also just as possible that you're not a Christian at all. One great mark of a true Christian is that he will not stay in immaturity. He will press on to grow. When something is made alive, it grows. If you've been made new by the Spirit, you will be growing. And so if you continue to remain immature in the faith, loving the stuff of the world, with little of your heart being concerned with the things of God, you need to be careful. You need to watch out. The warning sirens should be going off in your mind. Maybe you're just telling yourself, I'm an immature believer, when the reality is you're not a believer at all. The second thing I would say about this is this. While it can sometimes be hard to detect whether a person is an unbeliever or just a very immature Christian, what both those people need is the same thing. You see, this is very practical because all of us have family members and friends that we're concerned about. And sometimes we wonder, is my loved one just an immature believer or is my loved one lost? And sometimes we're hoping against hope that maybe they're just an immature believer. Sometimes we're just praying with our might, Lord, I'm seeing very little evidence here. May it be that this is just still a babe in Christ because we don't want them to be lost. But friends, the message that we need to give to both kinds of people is the same message. To the unbeliever, we plead with them to turn from their sins to submit themselves to Christ, to follow Him. And guess what we say to the immature Christian? Turn from your sins. Follow Christ. You wouldn't be a Christian at all if there wasn't something of this in your heart. There hadn't been some great moment of repentance. We need to see more evidence of this. Follow Christ. There are so many areas of your life that are still unconquered by the supremacy of Christ. There's a person here tonight and you're in this situation. All you know is that you don't seem very spiritual. All all you know is that you're not the kind of person I was describing this morning with the kind of passions that the Spirit has. And maybe you're wondering, am I lost or am I just an immature Christian? Well, friend, to be blunt, in one sense, it doesn't really matter. Either way, you need to do the same thing. If you're going to have assurance that you belong to Christ... What you need to do is to stop resisting the Spirit and to surrender yourself completely to Christ and to follow Him. To turn from your sins in every area of your life and to submit to Him as Lord. You need to fall out of love with this world. You need to learn from Jesus what it means to live well. You need to see His glory in the pages of the Bible, believe His promises, and live in the joy of resting in Him. So, to sum it up, There is no such thing as the carnal Christian. That is the Christian who's just all of the flesh, right? Believes in Jesus, but completely of the flesh. No. 
there is such a thing as a born-again, spirit-indwelt Christian who has so far to go that sometimes it's really hard to tell they're a Christian. Assurance comes from growing. Assurance comes from maturing. And so pursue spiritual growth by pursuing obedience to Jesus in every part of your life. Okay, with that said, come back with me to Romans 8. If you're not back there, turn back there. Let's look again at verses 5 through 8. And now we're going to jump into the particulars of how Paul describes the spiritual person. How does Paul describe the spiritual person? And still before we jump in, there's something we need to do. Namely, notice what Paul doesn't say about the spiritual person. In fact, let me just put this question to you. What do you picture in your mind's eye when I say that a person is spiritual? If you're in a conversation with someone, right? You're, you're, you're at Hardee's or something, and you're talking, and you're having lunch, and, and you mention somebody that you both know, and you say, oh, that's a very spiritual person. What does that mean? What, what comes into your mind by that word? Well, I would suggest that um, some people would think that a spiritual person is a person who really gets into worship. You ever thought that way? Right? I, I've been in churches before where, where people would, would close their eyes and raise their hands, and as the, the singing got going, they would begin to sway back and forth a little bit. And sometimes you could begin to get the impression, that person is really spiritual. Right? That person must be very close to God. I do think that's what a lot of people picture sometimes when they think of a spiritual person. I want to submit to you that Paul has nothing like that in mind here, right? This is not the person that necessarily... By the way, I do think that in private worship, when we're worshiping, um, when we're before God on our own and we're in private and we're reading our Bibles and we're praying, there are times when we may just be moved from the heart to, to break out in song and we might close our eyes and focus on the Lord. We might even raise our hands and put our body into it a little bit. I think that varies a little bit with people's temperaments. That is, some people are more given to that kind of worship than other people are given to that kind of worship, right? You, you scrunch up your face a little bit, right? And do that. There's, there's nothing wrong with that in private worship. In fact, I, I would suggest that, that it will probably happen for many of you from time to time if you're really engaging with the Lord over the Bible. Uh, I don't particularly think that that's a helpful thing in corporate worship because the passages that we have that are very clear on corporate worship tell us to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so one of the ways that we worship God on Sundays is by loving each other, by singing the greatest truths in the world into one another's ears. Uh, the Bible's perspective of corporate singing seems to be, at least in the New Testament, that God's people are gathered together teaching and admonishing one another through the singing of the Word so that we are spiritually benefiting one another as we sing. And so for me, it seems like you know, doing this while singing to you, right? It, it seems not helpful. By the way, I'm not at all against other churches who, who do those kinds of things. I'm just explaining why it's not something we typically do around here. It's because I don't think it's helpful in that regard. But all that to say that when we think of a spiritual person, sometimes that's the kind of person we think about. And that's not the kind of thing that, that Paul has in mind here. Another thing that Paul doesn't have in mind here is the person who's really into religion and theology, right? 
And this might be a temptation for some of us who, who are, are maybe more reformed types and we have this intellectual love of the Bible. And, and we can begin to think, you know, a real spiritual person is a person who knows a lot of doctrine, right? A real spiritual person is a person that can sit down and debate theology for hours and hours and hours up into the night. Now, certainly, all true Christians should love doctrine. Certainly, all true Christians should love truth because we're basing everything on these truths, right? I mean, heaven and hell are at stake in what we believe about these truths. And so we should all care about theology. But Christianity is not mainly intellectual. Yes, there's an intellectual part to it. But Christianity is not mainly intellectual. And for some people, their religion is all in their head and it never makes their way to their heart. Um, The mainline churches are filled with leaders and pastors who have a great interest in religion, but who have never been born again by the Spirit of God. You can find college professors and university professors who can lecture you for hour upon hour upon hour upon the teachings of the Bible, and they don't believe a word of it. So it's not just people who know a lot of doctrine who are spiritual. Indeed, you can know a lot of doctrine and not be spiritual at all, but the Spirit be very foreign to you. And then notice, last of all, that Paul does not describe a spiritual person, a Christian, as someone who disregards order and structure and embraces spontaneity. Now, nobody else may think this way, but when I ask myself the question, what do you picture when you picture a spiritual person? For some reason, the first thing that popped into my mind was a Quaker. Now, we don't don't have many Quakers around here anymore, and Quakers have changed the way they do things. But it used to be that back in the 1700s and the 1800s, the Quakers were very much of the belief that their church gatherings was to be spirit-led. And they understood that to mean that you don't have a preacher who comes with a prepared message, but that the people would gather together in the room and they would wait for the Spirit to move people to say and to do things. Um, They said the Bible and other things can be useful, but the main thing is to live like a boat on the sea and to be carried along by the breezes of the Holy Spirit. And so they were against order. They were uh, against having a structure. They, They wanted everything to be spontaneous by the Spirit. Well, that's not at all the kind of teaching that Paul gives us here when he describes the spiritual person. Verses 5 through 8 describe the spiritual person. We don't see a person who sways in worship. We don't see a person who's a theological know-it-all. We don't see a Quaker who is against order and structure. Here's what we have. A spiritual person, a Christian, is a person who now lives in a way that is opposed to the way he or she used to live. I mean, isn't that how these verses work? Paul pits the flesh against the spirit in these verses. The unbeliever walks according to the flesh. When a person is saved, a change occurs, and now the opposite is happening. They are living according to the Spirit. So the two are contrary to one another. And the question is this, which one is controlling your life? Which one dominates you, right? Are you a Spirit-driven person? Are you a flesh-driven person? And I think Paul gives us five descriptions, or at least five things that we can say from these verses about the spiritual person. And the first one is this. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things 
of the Spirit. Do you see it there in verse 5? Those who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now remember, this word minds refers to more than just your thinking and your brain. In English, when we say minds, we think head. In Greek, that, that word, was it, it's there. It includes mind and brain. It also includes will. It also includes desire. There's even some emotion involved in this. Paul is referring to that which drives your thinking, that which compels your thinking, that which draws you in. Those who live according to the Spirit find themselves inwardly drawn to the things of the Spirit. They are preoccupied with the things of the Spirit. When they have that lunch break at work and their mind begins to wander so many times, where does their mind wander? To the things of God. That's the idea here. It's, it's, it's where does your mind go when it's just being inwardly compelled to go somewhere? Right? What are the things of the Spirit that a Christian's mind might be drawn towards? Well, there are so many passages in the Bible that talk about our minds, but the first one that comes to my mind is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Meaning that the spiritual person's mind will be drawn towards God Himself. The things of the Spirit are the things concerning God Himself. A Christian will be characterized by a mind that loves to think about God, loves to think about the person of God, the works of God, the purposes of God in this world. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that a Christian will often be thinking about his or her own relationship with God. A Christian is a person who's had their eyes opened to this whole spiritual world. Look, a lot of folks out there, they don't even believe we have a soul anymore. They think we're just animal, okay? But you've been awakened to the reality that you have a soul and that your soul is in some kind of a relationship with God and We've come to see that there is nothing more important than making sure our soul is in a right relationship with God. We don't want to gain the whole world and lose our soul. In fact, it would be better for us to lose everything and have God than for us to have everything and lose God. You've heard it the catchy way. Christians understand that to have everything without God is to have nothing. To have nothing but God is to have everything. Everything else in the world pales compared to knowing God. And so what do we as Christians think about? We think about God. We think about our personal relationship with God. We think about our walk with God. We talk to God. We commune with God. And then through faith in Jesus, the Christian knows what it is to have real fellowship with Him. Here is the difference. Here is a great difference between the thoughts of an unbeliever and a believer. So test yourself. The unbeliever walks through this life as an individual disconnected from God, thinking little of God, experiencing life alone as an individual. But the Christian walks through life as a child of God. The Christian walks through life knowing that God is present, that God is watching, that God is there to provide for me and to protect me and to bless me. The Christian is not walking through life alone. The Christian is walking through life with his God with him or her God with her. 
The Christian is aware of this. When trouble comes, the first thought of the Christian is, let me take this to God. This is what makes all the difference in the world. I have God. I can't think of how many times I have sat down with senior adults in this church who were going through difficult times, and they said to me, I just don't know how people would make it if they didn't know our God. In other words, it is knowing that God is with them. It is knowing that God cares for them that makes all the difference in the world. Without this knowledge, without having this regularly in their minds, they don't know how they would make it. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be spiritually minded. Your mind runs constantly to God, that He is with you, that He is present with you, that He is for you, that He is caring for you. Or to go a different route, to have a mind like this, is to have a mind that finds joy in thinking about God and the things of God. Test yourself again. For many an unbeliever, there is nothing more boring in the world than talking about God, than thinking about God. Who wants to endure another sermon? Who wants to sit through another time of Bible reading? Thinking about God seems like such a waste when there's so much you could be doing. But to the Christian, to spend time thinking about God, learning about God, seeing His glories, praising Him, that's heaven on earth. This is our taste of paradise in this world. The worldly person doesn't understand this. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit is foreign to this. But the Christian gets it all by grace. Nothing in us that calls this to happen for us. But by grace, our eyes have been opened and we know what it is to be enraptured with the person of God, to love Him with our souls and to be loved by Him and to feel that. And to know that and to have that confidence. Just as your mind will always be thinking and thinking again about those in your life that you love the most, so a Christian's mind will be constantly thinking again and again about God and everything else in relationship to God. I'm a husband, but I'm a husband for Christ's sake. He's called me to this role. He's given me this privilege. He instructs me in how to be a faithful husband. He empowers me and gives me the strength I need. It is to Him that I will give an account on the last day concerning my husbanding. It is He that has set the example for me by loving me and leading me and providing for me. I have a role. That role is a husband, but that role is connected to my relationship with God. And I have other roles. I have lots of other roles. You have lots of roles in your life. Callings, vocations that God has put on you. But if you're a Christian, your mind will regularly connect these things to God. I want to parent, but I don't want to just parent any old way. I want to parent for God's sake. What does God say about this? Oh, situation at work. It's awful. I got this whole relationship mess with this person at work. What does God say about this? Do you think unbelievers think that way? Think unbelievers ask that question? 
That's evidence of the Spirit's work when that's your instinct, that's your inclination. What does God have to tell me about this? This is what it means to be spiritually minded. But again, how are we to understand this? The mind, the person who lives according to the Spirit has their mind set on the Spirit. But one thing we can do is remember Colossians 3 verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are of the earth. In other words, a Christian's mind is one that is caught up in heavenly realities, spiritual realities. A Christian's mind is caught up with more than just what we can see, taste, touch, feel, smell. The Christian lives with the eyes of faith. We interpret the world not just through what comes into these eyes, but what we see through faith in what God has told us in the Bible. I've never seen an angel. I heard Pastor Merle Wednesday night teach me all about him from the pages of the Bible. And now I'm learning to live life with this understanding. You know what? There's angels in this world. These are ministers sent to serve for the sake of those who belong to God. We're to practice hospitality towards one another and even to strangers because people have done that and entertained angels unawares. I mean, there, there could be angels walking around in this world and they, they look just like you, they look just like me, right? I would not believe that looking around with these eyes. But the Christian doesn't just look with these eyes. The Christian's mind is the mind of faith. It begins to take in knowledge that isn't just coming in through the senses. This affects our priorities, Right? The world is consumed with the latest issues of politics, the latest issues of the welfare of the nation. The Christian cares about those things, but the Christian is far more concerned about the growth of the kingdom of Christ. We care about the welfare of the United States. We do. And we care about the welfare of Rocky Mount. Absolutely. But we especially care about the welfare of Christ's church because we see through the eyes of faith that this is the kingdom that will last forever. Right? The world has its celebrities, and they praise these celebrities, and they exalt these celebrities. But Christians are more concerned with supporting missionaries, learning from choice servants of God, seeking to help brothers and sisters in Christ who know the Lord Jesus. The world thinks there's nothing better in the world than a vacation. The Christian says one day among God's people worshiping Him is better than a thousand days anywhere else. The world says the local church is foolish. It's a crutch for simple-minded people. But the Christian sees through the eyes of faith. He knows that Christ died for the church, that Christ rose for the church, that Christ is coming back to take the church to Himself as His bride. And so seeing through the eyes of faith, the Christian's mind goes there. Unbelievers don't think this way. You know that, don't you? Unbelievers don't give a flip about the Edwards in Africa. No offense. They, they did, right? Huh? Did you have a lot of unbelievers partnering with you guys? A lot of, a lot of, yeah, of course not, right? This is, this is what believers care about. Our minds are drawn to the things of God and the things that are connected to His glory in this world. Test yourself. Test yourself. Where is your mind? What occupies your thoughts? What, what grips your heart? What are you concerned with? 
I never lost sleep one night when the person that I didn't vote for became president of the United States. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't lose sleep one night over that. I have lost sleep many times over things going on in the church of Christ. That's the difference. That's the difference between, well, you get it. Okay. On and on we could go about the difference between the spiritually minded and the fleshly minded, the earthly minded. The spiritually minded have no time to desire or read trashy romance novels or the latest gossip magazines. We find our joys in feasting on the Bible and the books that help us to digest the Bible's teaching. The world thinks that there is no better happiness to be found in this world than the happiness of an intimate relationship with another person. But the Christian knows that as wonderful as our relationships are with other people, especially relationship between a husband and a wife, there is still a relationship that is far better, far more precious, far more satisfying. We see things that the world doesn't see by grace. The Christian knows of the spiritual realm that we are fighting battles with Satan and demons. The unbeliever has no clue. The unbeliever is constantly trying to fix spiritual problems with worldly solutions because the unbeliever has no real grasp on reality. They throw money at this situation. They say more education at this situation. We get all these problems in the world, but they don't turn to spiritual solutions because they don't understand that it's a spiritual problem because they're blind. The Christian's mind, the Christian's mind thinks about these things, knows these things, cares about these things. Our minds operate in a whole different realm than that of unbelievers. And more and more so as the Spirit works in us. This is part of growing up. All right. Next Sunday, we will continue looking along these lines by looking at the second point. I thought about trying to do the second point tonight, but it's, it became way too much in itself. And So next week, we'll look at what Paul means when he says that to set one's mind on the Spirit is life and peace. But for now, here's what I want you to see. That what we're talking about here is real Christianity. Real Christianity is not just a decision someone makes or being baptized or have your name on a membership roll. Real Christianity is about a complete transformation of a person's life so that the very core of the person has changed. Real Christianity is about a new creation such that a person's mind is now driven by new desires. A person's mind is now preoccupied with things that months before would have never even crossed that person's mind. It is a radical change, a radical change. It's almost sickening to me when political season comes around again and we begin having the politicians pander to Christians for their votes. And suddenly, all these politicians become Christians. And they talk about traditional moral values. And they talk about their esteem for their family. And they talk about their belief in God. And then when you go back and you look at their life as a whole, you realize they don't know anything about Christianity. For them, it's, it's simply a religion, a system of thought, a worldview that can be changed as society progresses. But God doesn't drive these people. God doesn't dominate them. He, 
He's not the love of their souls. Not for many of them. For them, Christianity is a cultural phenomenon. It is something that they can use to to get people to like them. Their form of Christianity, it, it has the form, but it doesn't have the power. Cultural Christianity is terrible. Terrible. That's why evangelism in some ways is so much easier in Boston, Massachusetts than it is in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Because we live in the midst of cultural Christianity where there are a lot of people who know a lot of doctrine and can say a lot of good things about Jesus and yet He doesn't occupy their minds at all because He doesn't have their heart. Mount Hermon, beware those who call themselves Christians and even believe themselves to be so when their minds are dominated by the stuff of this world and not by God. And let us check ourselves. Let us lay ourselves bare before the Word of God. If we find that there's at least a spark of what I've been describing tonight in us, then let us be thankful. If you find yourself thinking more and more about the things of God, that's the Spirit's work in you. Rejoice in that. It ought to be encouraging to you. It ought to be affirming to you when you you see yourself thinking about the things of God. Pray for more of that. Find joy in dwelling on the things of God because He can satisfy your soul like no one else. And then as we live along in this cultural Christian community that we live in, Let us be bold to take the gospel to everyone, even those who think they're Christians. Let us speak the gospel to them. And let us pray that God would use us in transforming the lives of many, many people around us. Amen? Let's pray.